Welcome to Everybody's Bad With Money, where we share stories and get real about personal finance. We make money talk fun. I'm AJ, and I'm here to introduce our guest, Lindsay Byron Pavin. Lindsay is a biracial financial therapist, speaker, and a Plutus-nominated author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. In her therapy practice, she uses shame-free financial therapy to help people get their minds and money in balance. Additionally, she's expanded her services to help therapists with their money mindset, niching, and authentic marketing. She lives with her husband and their dog in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Everybody's Bad With Money. I'm Amelie. And I'm AJ. And we have a special guest for you. We have Lindsay Brian Podvin on the on the show, ready to chat with us. We're so excited to have you, Lindsay. I'm really uh, excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> cool. So let's dive in. We, we want to know your money story. Talk to us about that and then how you became a financial therapist and what that's all about. Oh boy. Um, I listen to your money stories and I'm like, oh my gosh, how much time do they have? Right. Cause everybody's <laughs> money story is so can be so long and so nuanced. So I'll try to do the cliff notes version, but I also want to try and pull out some of the, the key pieces. Um, so starting in childhood, my, my mom, my parents, uh, had me when they were young. Um, my mom got pregnant with me as a senior in high school and she was able to graduate and everything like that. She ended up moving in with her parents, my grandparents, my biological father was not in the picture. Um, and so we were like pretty close to things being pretty dire. And at the same time, her parents were generous enough to say, you can stay with us. We'll help you pay for school. Don't worry about it. She ended up getting a nursing degree and married a physician. And that man ended up adopting me. And so we moved um, to rural Michigan up in the thumb. So if you don't know what I'm talking about. If you look down at your left hand and you take a look at your thumb and you imagine that is a map of Michigan, that is where I grew up in the thumb. So we ended up there because my adoptive dad uh, was, uh, he got recruited there on a rural healthcare grant. And then my mom and him had four other daughters. So I was the oldest of five girls and um, yeah, it was, it was wild. And I think the age difference between us is not a lot. It's like eight years, the whole span. So it's like every, (laughs) it's like less than, it's like just boom, boom, boom. They're packed in there. Um, So we grew up really financially secure because we grew up in a very low cost of living area. Um, We were incredibly fortunate. My mom did not let us forget that. And in a very kind way, she just always said to us when we went on vacations, when we got new clothes, um, you know, we're fortunate. This is we are, I don't think she used the word privilege, but she definitely said we're more fortunate than others. You have to understand like how lucky you are. Um, and it wasn't a way to blame or shame. It was just a way to basically, I don't think she wanted us to get spoiled, right? (laughs) She was like, I don't want them to get spoiled. And she did a really good job of narrating what she was doing financially. So if we were in line at the bank, she would just narrate what she was doing. Oh, I'm, I'm going to deposit a check. I'm going to withdraw some money. Oh, let me tell you what, see those rates up on the board. The, that's a CD. And let me tell you what a CD is. So she really did a nice job of, of helping kind of include money in the conversation. I like both of you, I think started working fairly young at like 14 or 15. I got my first job, um, and, and worked in hospitality, uh, AKA big boy. That is, <laughs> that is hospitality <laughs> when you are in the rural Midwest. I, I, I have to pause you and just ask yes. what does rural like mean in the sense of like, what was your life like in rural Michigan? Um, so we grew up literally across the river from Canada. Like you could see Canada from where we grew up. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, our town was maybe population of around 5,000, but that included townships and villages. We had, when I grew up there, there were two stoplights. Um, there was, I'm trying to remember, there was a small grocery store and a small pharmacy, but we didn't have anything really name brand until a McDonald's came in when I was in like high school and there were like protests because people didn't want McDonald's coming in. Um, it was 98.7% white. So I was the brownest person there. I'm half Filipino. My family's white. Uh, my biological dad's Filipino. So it was white and rural and mostly Irish, Polish Catholics. Um, and there were like big family names there. Like you kind of came from one of these three families. And if you weren't, you were an outsider. It was, I, I mean, 
Yeah, it was, I mean, that, that was rural America and we lived in a subdivision. Like it wasn't like we were in a, a country farm. Um, but if you drove five minutes in any direction, you were, you were in, in a farm. Um, I mean, I remember people taking their tractors to school on like certain <laughs> days. Um, the population of school would drop by like 50% on opening day. And then where I grew up, opening day is not baseball. It is hunting season. Um, so, so that's the culture there. Yeah. Wow. That's so fascinating. Okay. So then when do you leave? (laughs) When do you leave rural Michigan? Yeah. So I left rural Michigan. I went to a state school. I went to Michigan state and I also worked there. I first worked in the cafeteria there. And then that summer or the following fall, I started working at a restaurant. Um, and I, again, was incredibly financially privileged. My parents paid for my schooling. I worked, but it was for, um, like my cell phone or my gas, uh, my groceries. So I really, again, came from a ton of financial privilege and I chose to pay for those things. Um, I I imagine my parents would have paid for those things if I'd asked, but I, I had like a feeling that it was important for me to pay for those things on my own. But because I grew up like, let's just call it what it is. I grew up upper middle class because I grew up that way. I also didn't really have a concept of how far money went. So working in, in a restaurant as a server and bartender, I mean, if I needed to make money, all I had to do was say, Hey, does anyone want to give up their shift? And then I would pop in, make a couple hundred bucks and I'd be good to go. So my relationship with money was really like, if you need it, you just, just go get it. And I also really loved being in my mind, what was generous. So buying rounds of drinks for people, picking up people's pedicure tabs, stuff like that. That was really fun for me and also not super sustainable. So I graduated right into the great recession. Well, let me preface that. I graduated right before the great recession, May of 2008. I had a degree in sociology And I got a degree in marketing of which I knew nothing about, never had taken a marketing class, never had taken a business class. I had no, I I had no reason to be in that field. It was just, that was the time where if you had a degree, you could get a job. I mean, I graduated on a Friday and on Sunday I was working. Um, yeah, it was, it was very different. And so the job was like, you know, when you go to a concert and there's somebody, at the front, um, like right when you walk in handing out t-shirts or lanyards or something like that, Mm -hmm. that was my job. So I repped cell phones and I just went to concerts for almost a year. My gig was to show up at these concerts with one of my coworkers and get people to enter their email in. And then I would give them like a lanyard or something. So it was not I mean, it was, it was like Disneyland for a 22 year old, 21 year old, (laughs) because I graduated with in, into a job that I had no business being in. I didn't have any expenses. I lived out of a hotel for almost a year. So they paid for our hotel. I didn't have to pay for car or gas because it was a company car. We had uh, a big SUV with a 10 foot enclosed trailer. So I had to like take a little road test, learn how to drive this trailer And they paid my cell phone. They gave me a per diem for food. I mean, whatever money I made, I just banked it. And so I hated that job, turns out. So when I finished, they offered me to extend my contract. And I said, no, I'll I'll go find something else. Not having realized that the economy had totally bottomed out. Like I'd heard inklings, but I didn't know what that meant. Went back to Michigan after being... My job was actually East East Coast was my territory. So I was everywhere from like East Coast is funny the way they define it. It was everywhere from like Buffalo, New York up to Boston and down to D.C. So it was a pretty big territory. Um, So went back to Michigan, thought for sure I'd just pick up another gig and haha, that didn't happen. So I did the next best thing, which I think like AJ, I just took off and I went to Europe and Asia for a few months. Oh, good. Figure it out when I get back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Spent all of my money traveling, all the money that I'd saved up. And then did you have have money saved up at that point from your previous job? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I had no expenses. Um, so I just, I mean, I, I budgeted out my travel. I didn't, um, but I, I paid for everything. And then when I got back, 
I started waitressing again at the exact same bar that I had during my undergrad years in East Lansing and tried to figure out next steps. That's when I started learning about personal finance, started reading books, started watching TV shows because there weren't like podcasts then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the more I learned, the more comfortable I felt and the more empowered I felt. So what I originally really kind of like turned you on to finance? Like, how did you find it? Um, I originally found it in, in a, a, on a bookshelf at my mom's house. There was The Millionaire mm. Next Door, which is like the old school original book. And I remember, I must have read it in high school or college, but I remember grabbing it and being like, a little nervous. Like, what if somebody sees me reading this book? Like, are they going to think I want to be a millionaire? Do they think I am a millionaire? Like, I don't know why I had all those thoughts, right? That's a part of the money stories. Like somehow it's bad, but I remember seeing that book on the bookshelf and being like, we should probably hide that. Like that's, that's pretty so interesting. Right. I was like, I don't think we should have that out in, out in public. Were you big on the like Susie Orman, like QVC? Totally. Oh yeah. Totally. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I was big on to Susie. I loved a Susie Smackdown. <laughs> she like, it was fantastic. And so I, I taught my, I didn't teach myself. They taught me a lot of things and I found it really helpful. Went back to grad school for social work. That was kind of a wish and a prayer. I was like, I'll apply to one school. If I get in, it's meant to be, if not, mm-hmm. it's not. Um, I ended up getting into the University of Michigan, which is where I still am here in Ann Arbor and going to that social work school. And then graduating with that degree and making less money with a master's degree than I did as a server. And so then that money Mm. stuff just kept coming up. I was like, here I am incredibly financially privileged. I didn't have undergrad student loan debt. Um, I understand how to manage money and I'm still feeling like I'm counting down the days until I get my paycheck. Like this, this just isn't going to work for me. And I cut and I scrimped and I saved, but at the end of the day, you can only cut and scrimp and save so much. So when a job opportunity came around at healthcare system, it paid almost double. I took that and it was, I think AJ, you said the same thing. Like you didn't realize how much stress you were caring about money until it was gone. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, I can breathe again. Um, So from there, I spent a lot of time working in my social work career as a therapist, spending time doing depression and anxiety work. I loved that work and money stuff inevitably came up with my clients. And my training was don't talk to your clients about money. You should refer to a credit counselor. You should refer to, you know, somebody else, but basically stay in your lane. And that's not your lane. And I disagree because I think that, I think that money is incredibly psychological and incredibly emotional, but we didn't talk about it in grad school. I mean, I, again, I was at like the, it's, you know, to toot my own horn, it's ranked like number one and number two of, of social work schools in the country. And even then the times that money got brought up was from professors saying things like you didn't go into this field to make money. Money isn't important to you if you chose social work. And, um, I had one professor say people who go into private practice, which is what I'm in aren't real social workers. So the message that we got again and again was you need to be a martyr in order to do good work in this world. Um, so you, I, I, you know, there's so much to navigate there. So I really was just kind of working with my clients and I was like, this, this doesn't feel right. There's money stuff going on. I feel like I have enough knowledge to help. And I also don't want to be unethical and offering help if I'm not trained. So I got additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy and started offering financial therapy services. Where did you find that? Google (laughs) (laughs) university of Google. So I started searching I was like, you know, I probably just went down a rabbit hole. I was like, how can I find, I think I'm, I'm sure I typed in like behavioral psychology or financial psychology and just kept searching until I found something. And, um, I did, <laughs> I was really lucky. The financial therapy association that was new. I mean, they've been around a decade. Um, and a lot of the other training programs, they weren't accredited. There were a lot of, um, there were a lot of like, financially based accredited programs, but nothing in the space of psychology or in the space of emotional health, in my opinion. And I wanted that. I didn't want to like manage somebody's money. I wanted to help them with how they related to money. So, so that's what I found. And thankfully more social work schools, more counseling schools, more, um, financial planning schools are including financial psychology and financial social work slash therapy education 
but that did not exist uh, in my curriculum when I finished in 2011. So you've been in this space for a while and Mm -hmm. now you're starting to see that like other people are coming into the space and like, what's that been like? Cause like it's small, but now that I'm in it, I'm noticing like, oh, there's so many more people here. Yeah. It's like anything, right? There's so many people in this space and I feel of two minds about it. On the one hand, I feel really thankful that there are so many options. And on the other hand, I, I don't recommend Susie Orman anymore. I don't recommend a lot of those people that I learned from because they're so rooted in shame and cutting and scrimping. And they don't take into account, in my opinion, real life barriers that people have, right? You know, we have seen how racism has played out in this country. A lot of them don't take into account those things. They don't take into account people who are in the LGBTQIA community. We don't take into account a lot of other factors. So when I see a lot of finance coaches talking about you know, debt is bad. It makes you a bad person. I'm not okay with that. Like we know that shame doesn't work to motivate people. Um, so, so I am thankful that there are so many and I'm hopeful that the, the industry will turn towards what we know tends to work for behavior change. And it's not shame and blame. It's certainly not. We are not about that. Yeah. Yeah. We are not. It's just, it doesn't work. And it also, you already have shamed yourself enough and you feel bad enough. Exactly. Who are in debt, aren't happy they're in debt. Yeah, exactly. And especially as women, I feel like we're brought up to like really internalize that shame and blame. And so especially when it comes to money, it's just like, you have to take a different approach because at least for me personally, like I put so much of that shame and blame on myself. Like I certainly did not need it from somebody else. (laughs) I needed a completely different approach to really help me out of my situation. Right. Right. So what was it? So when did you, so you've been in your private practice and when did you start utilizing like social media to get into that world? And when did that, and like what basically um, we have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen and I'm like, they want to know what's it like to build a business and grow a business and all that stuff. <laughs> I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> I love it. And also I would love to talk about the you earning money and people being like, that's bad. How dare oh, you sure. want to provide for a life for yourself, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which one do you want to start with? The first question about like going into social media, how did you, sure. when did you start utilizing that and all that? Um, almost exactly two years ago. So I did not have social media. I, I just wasn't into it, I suppose. And then I realized really quickly when I got certified, I got certified in May of 2018 in financial social work. It's such a narrow niche that I knew I needed to get my name out there. And I knew I had to be on, on social media, right? It's like, it's like the equivalent now, if you're not on social media of somebody who doesn't have a cell phone 10 years ago, yeah. it's like, we, we get it, but also come on. And I can say that because my partner doesn't have social media. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, yeah. So no social media, I kind of fell into it tried it out. I have loved leveraging Instagram for connections with other people. Um, but I've made a ton of mistakes on the way and I find a lot of it really exhausting. And I think it's that constant dance of how much time do you invest versus how much time do you need to take care of yourself? How many platforms can you really be decent on? I, I actually prefer YouTube. I started out by, by throwing some videos up on YouTube and I really love that but it just took so much time that it just didn't make sense. Like if I could hire a crew to film and edit and like dress me, I would love that. I would be on video all day, every day, but, um, I'm not, and I don't. So that's why I do a podcast now. Cause I can show up in my pajamas (laughs) (laughs) case in point and it's fine. Um, but really I would say if you are a new entrepreneur, there's really like get your email list going for sure. That's like a non-negotiable, but then when it comes to picking out a social media platform, can you be successful on any of them? Yes. But can you be successful on all of them? Not right away. Definitely not right away. Like I start out doing all the things and really people, people find me through my podcast through Instagram. So that's where I'm going to spend my time. And I've noticed a huge dip in my engagement. So now I'm like on um, Instagram, 
Um, their algorithm has really changed. And I know people are like, oh, the algorithm, wah. but like I used to have so much more organic reach than I do now. And I think they're using Facebook's model of like pay to play. Now you got to start buying ads if you want people to see mm. your stuff. Um, so I don't know. We'll see what 2021 brings. If I start dabbling on print- Pinterest a little bit more, maybe beef up my SEO game. But yeah, that's a little bit about my social media stuff. Love it. So the second question, if I can articulate it better, is um, <laughs> there's that there's that um, belief that if you're ch- you're trying to help people with money, you shouldn't be taking any money, or that yeah. there that like you shouldn't ask for a premium rate or things like that. And how do you navigate that conversation? Um, now I navigate it pretty well. I will say I'll pat myself on the back for that, but I did not at first at all. I definitely bought into the importance of being pious or being a martyr in order to do good work. And then I, I developed horrific insomnia. I mean, I only slept for like four hours a night for years. Um, at that first job that I was in, even though I love the work, it was so emotionally taxing on me. And I just didn't have the capacity to say I need more money or I need to do less work. I just was so burnt out that I didn't even realize, um, um, how burnt out I was. So I had done that, like grinding myself to a pulp, working more hours than required, giving more of myself than I could. And I was chronically sick. I had horrific insomnia and I knew that that just wasn't sustainable. So that was right before I switched to the healthcare job. Um, and it was around that time that I finally had like the wherewithal to be able to work on my money story, right? When you're in survival mode, you, you can't get like enlightened. No, like you're, you're trying to survive. So I didn't have the capacity to think in a a rational or holistic way about my money at that point in time. So once I got that healthcare job, I had definitely internalized that social workers can't have nice things. My partner, however, loves BMWs, loves them. And so is that when, what's behind you right now? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a, well, I shouldn't know this. 1985 M3, I want to say. Wow, you're good. Thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a whole nother song and dance. So it was time to buy a car. And I had been driving a Honda Civic Hybrid, like a very rational, reasonable car for a social worker, right? Like yep. that, that kind of fits car. the mold. That was literally was it? Yeah. <laughs> like very practical. Uh-huh. And it, it was like time. It was time for a new car. And my partner was like, cool, we're getting you a BMW. And I was like, I can't like, you don't understand social workers can't have nice things like that. I mean, I was so distraught by this idea. Mind you, we were buying it pre-owned. It was within our budget and it checked all the boxes of the things we needed it to check. But because it's known as like a status symbol car, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Mm-hmm. I literally had talked to my social work supervisor. Like we have supervision once a week, which is essentially like checking in on your mental health for your clients or I'm sorry, for your um, employees. That's what we do in social work. That's like a non-negotiable. So during supervision one week, I like brought it up to my supervisor and I was like, um, do you think I can buy a BMW? Like almost in tears, <laughs> so beside myself because I was certain they were going to revoke my social work card. And like without batting an eye, she's like, yeah. So we buy the car, Monday comes, I drive and into the parking lot. I park as far away as possible from the entrance because I don't want to be seen getting out of the car. I'm still so ashamed. I'm literally sweating. I walk in, I'm like, oh, I'm convinced somebody's going to like make a joke or I'm going to be in trouble. And of course, nobody said anything. First of all, nobody is watching the parking lot for what car you drive or where you're parking or what you're coming in. But that was when I really realized like, wow, I've really internalized this stuff and mm. it's it's time to do some work. So fast forward to now <laughs> to how I'm able to charge for my services. Look, I'm, I'm a mid-level healthcare provider. Just like you would pay a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant mm. to go into the office, that's the type of education and training I have. And I know it sounds like a little brash to be like, well, that's, that's my background, but it is like, I'm a oh, trained. I don't think it is at all. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> See, like sometimes we have to do our own like coaching yeah. in our heads. So I have to remind myself of that, that therapists are the lowest paid, uh, mid-level healthcare providers in the U S like they just are. Um, and I, I don't like that idea. And I think so many therapists also struggle with boundaries. Like when I was starting out in private practice, people are like, can I come in on like Friday night at 8 PM? And I was like, Oh, maybe. And I'm like, 
No. If your dentist was closed on Friday night at eight and you needed a cleaning, you wouldn't be like, could you um, maybe open up yeah. like the dental office for me and like do a cleaning? They'd be like, no, you can come in on Monday morning at seven when we're open or whatever it is. So first just kind of reminding myself of what my role was and what my job was and the importance of how creating boundaries within my work models for clients, the importance of setting boundaries in their own lives. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Right. It's, it's mm-hmm. so important. And I think, you know, I've been in and out of therapy my whole life. I will continue to be because I think it's important. Um, but I think we've had therapists that don't have good boundaries and it's stressful as a client. Yeah. Like it's almost increases my anxiety. If I'm like, are they going to like be on time? Are they going to be late? Are they going to answer their phone? Are they going to call me back at six in the morning? Like that's stressful in a lot of ways versus them just saying like, these are my hours. If you call me on this time, I'll call you back within one business day. If it's an emergency, go here anyway. Um, so when it comes to charging for my services, I, it it took a long time to get here. And to me, it is absolutely an investment, but it is also just a part of our, our, our overall well-being right? It's no longer finances are over here and self-care is in the other corner. It's like financial self-care is a thing and we have to invest in it and nurture it and take care of it in order to cultivate not just our overall wellness, but also our our mental and emotional wellness. So to me, it, it, it's all intertwined. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly is financial therapy? What type of people that you see, how people find you, like what, what are you doing on a day to day? Yeah. I love that question because I think a lot of people automatically think financial therapy is for people who are struggling financially because that's an easy connection to draw. But for me, financial therapy, so the broad definition of financial therapy is financial therapy helps you think, feel, and behave in alignment with your numbers, um, in alignment with your money, right? So it's all about those, those three different interaction points that we have with our money. And for me, my clients, I'm here in Ann Arbor. It's a, um, bougie area. If I do say so myself, it's a lot of like ivory tower folks. Um, we have a big university here. We've got a high rate of MDs and PhDs. So we have a lot of people who make good money, but also feel incredibly guilty about it. We also have a lot of people who make more money than their parents did um, and are struggling with how to kind of hold space for being a better financial position than their family was growing up. We also have um, a high population of immigrants here. So then how do I hold space for having money and not sending money home or drawing those family boundaries when the culture says like you need to give money back to your family, um, et cetera. So a lot of my work is around helping people understand their relationship to money. I do a ton of work around money, shame and around financial anxiety, but the bulk of my clients are in their thirties to fifties. They're doing okay financially, but they just feel so uncomfortable engaging with money in any way, shape or form. Like they only look at it at tax time. They only look at it when they have to fill out their HR forms. They don't want to talk to their partner about it. They're terrified. It's going to like take the romance out of their relationship. If they are not partnered, it is like a, a dominating anxiety that's kind of in the back of their mind. Like I think a few of us have talked about that they don't really realize is there until it's brought up. Right. And so one way I like to think when clients are like, well, how do I know if it's for me? I like to say like, look, if, if you've read the f- personal finance books and you've, and you've got your numbers in order and you still feel off, you still feel uncomfortable, you still feel avoidant, then that's probably a cue that financial therapy would be helpful. And it's not as long-term as a lot of therapy. A lot of therapy is ongoing forever and ever. And that's anxiety provoking in and of itself. If you call a therapist and be like, Hey, how long are we going to work together? And they're like, it could be forever. You're yeah. like, <laughs> as long as you need. I know. I'm like, I don't like, want to so go. The rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That's stressful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Financial therapy, the way that I do it is much more short-term. We're really focusing in on a couple of um, kind of pain points. I hesitate to even say pain points, but we're, we're focusing on a couple of areas that are difficult and we're really honing in on that. So we meet weekly or every other week for four to six months. So it's not this forever and ever eternal thing. It, it's much more goals-based, um, 
even though the goals are like feel better about money, they're not necessarily have 5k in the bank, though they might be right. The bulk of my work, 80, 90% is emotional, psychological, but of course I include financial literacy into it. So sometimes we are looking at a client's budget. Sometimes we are looking at, um, their spending plan. Um, but most of the time we're, we're doing the, the talking about it. So this is going to be, I don't even know if this is possible, but what would you say at the core, uh, what is the core issue for so many people with money? I think that they are terrified of it. They're terrified of, of it. And in, in, it could be for a million different reasons. But if we think about what money has kind of manifested as or shown up as in a lot of our lives, it's, it's this necessary evil instead of something that can be healthily engaged with. A lot of people feel like they need it to spend it on other things, but they'd rather not have to deal with it. Um, whereas I look at it as this is something that we're going to engage with all the time. Why not cultivate a healthier relationship with it? Totally. Yeah. I love that. Are you currently taking clients virtually since we're in the midst of a pandemic? Um, how was that working before? Yeah. Are you going to continue doing that in the future? No, I'm hundred percent online. I moved everything online April 1st of 2020. That was my plan at the start of the year anyway. So, wow. um, yeah, <laughs> that worked I do, out well. yeah, I do all of my work online anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask, and this might be a little, uh, temp like digging in of the conversation about that shame culture. What are your thoughts on Dave Ramsey? Yeah. Oh, I get really fired up about him. How did I um, know? So I get really I just fired up. This feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we feel the same way. Please yeah, get, please go I get for it. it's it's he's so it, it's really hard because he is one of the introductions to personal finance for most people, and a lot of people swear by his programs and are so thankful that he's broken things down for them in a way that is manageable and doable. And the reasons his programs, in my opinion, are so successful is because they are incredibly broad. So they're applicable seemingly to a lot of people, but it's also, I mean, he in a, of himself is a problematic human. So like taking that, <laughs> that him as a problematic human aside, his work is also so shame-based. It's so, so shame-based. rooted really in is. you're an idiot. If you get a latte, it's you're stupid. If you rent and you don't buy a home, how could you have debt? What's wrong with you? And if you are anxious or worried about getting your money in order, and then you sign up for something that has the word peace in it, and you're expecting something to be peaceful and get some weight off your shoulders, and then you're shamed for having debt, like that's only going to perpetuate a, a cycle of shame. So no, I, I don't buy into that. Um, I think, I mean, most of my clients, like I'm pretty clear on where I stand. I'm pretty clear on my values. Um, I identify as a biracial financial feminist. And I think Dave Ramsey automatically doesn't fall into any of those intersectionalities that I identify with. Certainly yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. Someone described it as me as yeah. he's just, he, he tried, he like, we, people like you and me assume the best of somebody and he is living in the pretense that like people, if they had, if they saved while paying off debt, for example, that they wouldn't be able to do it because they're unreliable. Humans are unreliable. So when you have a foundation Mm -hmm. of like, Mm -hmm. of that, uh, long-term effects, I just can't imagine being positive. Yeah. And I believe in gay rights. Um, so that kind of rules him out right away. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Fair. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not good. It's pretty bad. Has he vocalized um, that out in yes. like a public way, like on a Twitter account? Um, that's a great question. So it's shaded. Like he, he will drop hints for sure, but it is fairly public knowledge that he, uh, does not agree with that lifestyle. And he believes it's a lifestyle, right? He believes that. that mm. So, Oh, well, that just Deep makes breath. it so much worse. <laughs> I, I just didn't like him because of his method. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he also just like stressed me out. I remember when I was first doing this work and I was listening to his, one of his podcasts because again, that was like one of my first introductions into right, right. financial freedom, financial wellness, whatever you want to call it. And he said something offhand of like, while you do this and while you pay off your debt, you will not see the inside of a restaurant. 
And I was like, oh my God, like that is so stressful to me. That's not helpful Mm -hmm. to think about like, Mm -hmm. what if there is a birthday party or like, I don't know, Mm -hmm. just so many examples of, of so stressful. And there are ways that you can, you know, if that's important to you, work it into your budget. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's, yeah, he's stressful. (laughs) What's a, um, what's a, a way that you help clients find balance? Like how do you help clients find balance? So everything that I do is values-based and and rooted in alignment, which means I won't tell any of my clients, you can't have a latte, you can't go to lunch, you can't take a vacation. If you do those things, that's cool. We just have to figure out where that money's coming from. So everything that I do is values-based and alignment-based, which means that instead of cut, cut, cutting based on what I think you should be doing, you are cutting on the things that you don't get joy from, and you're spending on the things that do bring you value. You know, studies have shown again and again that in most cases, spending money on experiences tends to bring a better return on investment in terms of the happiness that you get on it when you spend on experiences. But there's always an asterisk. And that asterisk is if you really, really love a particular item or a particular thing, and you're excited to buy it. So let's say you are obsessed with Diane von Furstenberg dresses. And from the time you were a kid, you idolized her and you watched her shows and you couldn't wait till you could like afford a wrap dress of hers. And when the day comes that you can afford it and you buy it, you actually will get a greater return on happiness from that particular purchase than you would from a trip. So it's also not my job to say, actually a trip will bring you more joy because for some people it's not going to, um, so, so that's how I help people get their, their minds and money and balance is we first make sure that their spending is working for them. And then we, we are checking in. I think a lot of people get stuck with budgeting. Um, I try to call it a spending plan because budgeting in our head sounds restrictive, whereas spending plan sounds a little bit more um, proactive, a little bit more fluid. So, so what I like, I think a lot of people think, oh, once I get my budget, once I get my spending plan, that's it. I just have to stick to it yeah. indefinitely. And it's like, Well, maybe you get into it a month and you realize like, wow, I actually don't think this particular line item is sustainable. And then we tweak it. We figure it out. Um, So for me, that that's really what it comes down to is spending in alignment with your values. That's going to bring you more joy. That's going to bring you more happiness. And we know that there is such a high correlation between student loan debt um, and high credit card debt and unfortunately, suicidality. Um, And so that doesn't just mean attempting and dying by suicide. It also means having suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts, right? So we also want to make sure that if there is debt going on, that we are ensuring that that person knows that debt doesn't make them a bad person. That doesn't mean their life is unworthy. Their their debt is not indicative of their self-worth. So we're doing a lot of work around separating that because so much of the way that we are raised in our society is that if you work hard and earn good money, then you're a good person, which then means the inverse must be true. If you have debt, you must be a lazy, bad person, which of course is not true, but a lot of us internally it that way. Yeah, I have a, a so in, in my practice, something that I really work on with people is gift giving. Yeah. Um, it's my only area that I'm a little bit more tough on mm-hmm. because I feel that the reason why people give is so much more psychological and emotional and could be based from trauma than any yep. other category. Um, like, I, like, I think it's easy to curb compulsion when people align with their values, but when it comes to gift giving, it comes from a different place. And so I'm wondering how you manage that with your clients and, um, what are your philosophies on that? Yeah, I I would agree that to me, gift giving kind of comes at the end, meaning if we're thinking about practicing financial self-care, we first have to take care of some of those tenants, right? So even though I'm talking about spending in alignment with your values, if the person I'm working with can't afford their rent, then I'm also not saying, well, just don't pay rent. Just go get that Airbnb for the weekend. Like, obviously we're taking care of house and home. If you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're making sure they have home. We make sure they have clothing. We make sure they have food, right? We're making making sure the basics are covered. And to me, gift giving is kind of on the top of that pyramid because it's about altruism. It's about charity. It's about, um, giving in that way. And so when I have clients who are predisposed to spending on others, let's say, I often like to think about what's the why behind that. Oh, well, I saw it and I thought of them. 
cool. Is there another way that you can tell them that you thought of them that doesn't involve buying a gift? Or maybe instead of buying them the gift, maybe you get them the card and say, Hey, I saw this thing at this gift shop. It reminded me of you, right? So maybe you can spend four bucks instead of 45 bucks. Um, but to me, gift giving comes at the end. Um, and that's not to say that you're not allowed to give gifts, but it's really about starting to practice financial self-care and that means taking care of yourself first and foremost. If you're giving away and you're gifting, then you won't get on strong financial footing. And it's going to make it so much harder to, to just feel comfortable and confident. And it feels so much better to give a gift when you know you can afford it, right? When you're not going so home and then you're like pulling your hair better. out and you're like, oh, oh yeah. right? Right. And can you imagine if the gift recipient knew that you were stressed out financially about giving them that gift? They would never want it. I, I can't imagine any person being like, I'm so glad you almost went into debt to get me that gift. Like, no. And that, that goes also for charitable giving. I, I, I would agree with you there. Totally. Do you, yeah. do you advocate for your clients to start building language around money to talk to their partners and family about, and like setting those boundaries, like, no, we're, unfortunately we can't do presents for Christmas this year, but I'm going to do something yeah. this instead. How does that look like in your practice? Yeah, definitely. Family conversations and relationship conversations are paramount. And I think more than like what the boundaries are going to be, it's just getting them set up to create those boundaries. So it looks a little bit more like, again, what's your why? Why aren't you giving gifts this year? Oh, because we feel stingy. No, that's not the reason. It's because it's really important to you. I'm making this up to um, pay down your mortgage more quickly or pay off that car loan a little bit more quickly, or it's more important to you to bulk up that emergency fund. You know, this year, I was so thankful that I had a freaking emergency fund more than any other year in my life. Yeah. Um, and and that, that gave me so much more peace of mind. So when you know your why behind how you are changing your spending behavior, it makes it easier to implement those boundaries. And people's reaction is so much more about them than it is about you. So if you say to your family, hey, FYI, we are not exchanging gifts this holiday. Instead, we're going to do like one donation to a charity in name of everyone, or we're going to do like a white elephant $5 gift, or we're just not going to do gifts because it's actually not that important. And when you ask people, what gifts did you get last holiday season? Most people can't name any. Um, it's important to just say like, this is, this is it. Um, and so when you get that pushback, it's just practicing standing in that discomfort and it'll feel uncomfortable for a moment or two, maybe even a day or two, but that discomfort dials down over time, just like anxiety, right? When we first experience anxiety, if we have social anxiety, we walk into a party, our anxiety is through the roof. Five minutes later, it goes from a 10 to a nine, a half hour later, we're like hanging out at an eight. And then, you know, a couple hours in, we're like, okay, I'm like still a little bit anxious, but it's totally tolerable. My anxiety is at like a four or five. It's the same thing with setting those boundaries. It feels so uncomfortable. It feels so unbearable at first. And then it gets better with time. Yeah. I think you're hitting on such a good point to me, like uh, one of the most beautiful parts about really owning your finances and understanding where you are financially is really tapping into that honesty and having the ability to be honest with your friends, be honest with your family about where you're at, because at least, I mean, I only want to speak for myself, but I found that when I did have credit card debt, or let's say I couldn't afford a gift for someone's birthday or whatever it might be, mm -hmm. it was so difficult for me to be honest about my financial situation. And so I think one of the really incredible things about really getting your finances in order is having the ability to like be honest with your friends and family and really share a deeper part of yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the thing. So many of us think we're alone. So many of us think we're the only ones struggling in some way. And when you say mm -hmm. it out loud, you realize like, oh my gosh, we're all in this together. Why are we still not talking about it? <laughs> yep. Hence, bad with money. hence the name. <laughs> yep. Um, how do you and your partner um, talk about money? Oh, good question. Um, so monthly, usually we do money dates and we're essentially looking at like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we look at like, uh, kind of what's going on just day to day. Like how's our monthly spending looking? And then we're looking at our yearly goals and then kind of future casting, um, ahead. So usually like right now, our yearly goal, one of the things we were saving for is like updating our basement. So that's, you know, so, so exciting, but that's something that we're yeah. saving for every month. Um, and we have, 
I'm a big fan of automated savings accounts and naming them different things, right? So we've got our emergency fund, our checking account that like pays for our bills and whatnot. But then we save every month for gifts, interestingly, right? We save for gifts, we save for travel. And then we have like a sinking fund for those one-off expenses that aren't really emergencies. So we have a bunch of different savings accounts and that works. We share a mint account so we can both kind of see what transactions are coming and going and categorize them if needed. Um, Yeah. That's what we do. That's awesome. And was that like that from day one or did it no. take time to get there? Okay. No, no, no. My parents are divorced. Um, I wanted nothing to do with merging accounts. I felt like it was the least feminist thing I could do was to blend accounts with my partner. So I checked out probably 10 books from the library, like binge read all these books on marriage and money, trying to figure out how do people do this? Um, because my partner comes from like, uh, you know, a healthy household. Um, <laughs> and that was just like the next thing to do is like blend your accounts. And I was like, no, I'm an independent woman. I'm not doing that. And interestingly, we bought a house together before we were even engaged. Um, so we had, we had blended certain things already, but there was something in my head about blending more of it that felt really scary. And to me, the way that we were able to kind of move through this together was to have a little bit of autonomy, but the bulk of it blended. So all of our finances are blended. And then at the start of the month, we essentially get an allowance that we each get to spend however we want. If I, you know, when COVID is over, want to go to the spa for the weekend and I've got the money and my allowance to do it, I can do that. Um, if I want to save up like a couple of years ago, I saved up to get like a tattoo. That was cool for me. Like, you know what I mean? So it, it gives me a little bit of autonomy to not feel like I have to be like, oh, I bought a lot. I have to tell my husband like that didn't feel good. So we right. built in a little bit of autonomy. Um, and it also builds in just, just more intimacy because right. We have to see what's coming in and what's going out of that account. And to me, I mean, I don't know who said it. You guys will be able to tell me who the quote is, but, uh, you know, don't tell me what your values are. Show me your, where, where your spending is and I'll tell you what your values are. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's that same idea of once we saw what was coming in and what was going out and we were able to talk about it openly, it just became easier. Totally. Yeah. I love that. If you had to choose one word to describe your relationship with money, what would it be? Evolving. Ooh, Ooh that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love yeah it. It's definitely question. not one and done. No, certainly not. Certainly not. Um, wonderful. It was great chatting with you. We mm-hmm. would love to hear or have our listeners hear where they can find you, what you're working on. Yeah. Promote oh away. All right. <laughs> so my, my practice is called mind money balance. M I N D and everything that I do is underneath that handle. So my podcast is of the same name. My Instagram handles that name. My website is that name. Um, I have two arms in my business. I have one arm where I see clients for financial therapy and coaching. And then I have another arm for private practice therapists, helping them rewrite their money stories so they can Mm. grow sustainable practices. uh, Just because I saw so many people struggling with the money mindset in the therapy world. Um, Wow, that's so, I really, I love that. Thanks, thanks. (laughs) Something I really resisted because I, I had, I think like many of us there, there's bad coaches out there, you know, just like there's bad therapists, just like there's bad doctors. So I was worried about putting my name in the coaching realm, but the more I lean into myself and do what intuitively feels good, I feel better about it. That's a sidebar. Anyway, um, (laughs) people can support me by buying my book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. It is a workbook. And I also have a fun quiz. If you are curious about what your money type is and hint, it's more than just I'm a saver or I'm a spender. There are four unique archetypes based on financial psychology. And you can find that at mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. That's awesome. I want Great. to take it. I want to know what I'm going to say. After this, I'm going to go immediately go take yeah, a quiz. Same. <laughs> awesome. back. Yeah, please amazing. do tag me when you do. I'm always so curious what, what types people are. Oh, I'm I totally going to do I'm it right now. I'm curious as well. Wait, I'm uh, going to take we- a photo. Yes, I, please do. Exactly. And then we can, um, and then I'll post it. Yay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> photo. <laughs> And then we always like to end all of our podcast episodes with three things that we're grateful for. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to start or if you'd like one of us to, but we each do three or we each yes. do one. We each, oh, we do, each three. do three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
it's actually really good time that you're asking me this because on we're recording this a few days before Thanksgiving and mm-hmm. I made the decision that it's not wise to see family. And I was really upset about that decision. Oh, I spent yeah. most of Saturday crying because it's just hard. It's hard. Even if you know it's the right thing for the community, it's, it's, it guts you. Um, so if you would have asked me on Saturday, I would have been really cranky about technology. But today, now that I've cried a little bit, I'm feeling really thankful that we can do like Zoom rooms and Facebook hangouts or whatever they're called to connect with people. Even though I know we're all so fatigued of them at the end of the day, it's so much better than what it would have been like even 10, 20 years ago, trying to navigate this world so, so far apart. So that's one thing I'm thankful for. Um, I'm pretty much always thankful for my dog. I have a two and a half year old Portuguese water dog and I'm always thankful for her. And I'm thankful for warm winter gear because in Michigan, you really, really need it. Um, And it's started to turn and it started to snow and I'm thankful that I can still bundle up and go outside. That's awesome. Wonderful things. (laughs) I'll go. I am thankful for... um, I'm thankful for the, to, <laughs> so many things. Uh, I'm thankful for uh, the sun today. It was so beautiful. It was raining this morning, which I love in the morning. And then it was sunny and beautiful. Um, I'm thankful for uh, home cooked meals that I've been having a lot lately, which I love. Um, oh, and my friends, I just bought my wedding dress and I have like the greatest support system and they came and um, we're so supportive and wonderful in the middle of this pandemic and everything. And, and I felt so cared for mm-hmm. during that process. That's so special. Oh, so lovely. My turn. Um, I am grateful for, um, sleeping because I have really not been sleeping well recently. And it's just one of those things where when you, don't experience it, you realize how essential it is for life and functioning. And so tonight, my only goal for myself is to get a good night's sleep, whatever that looks like. Um, I am also super grateful for the weather. I saw a rainbow today, which is just like mind blowing, especially in November in Boston, that never happens. And so I, I felt like it was a sign of the, from the universe that things are going to get better, going to believe in it. Um, and I'm super grateful for music. I have been spending a ton of time alone, like dancing around my apartment and really just bringing my mood up. So grateful for all the the music out there. Love it. Well, Lindsay, it was so fantastic having you and I cannot wait for our viewers to hear your story and what you're up to. Well, thank yes, you so much for having me. Incredible and it's a, conversation. Yeah. And it's another testament to, to just like women collaborating, right? We met through other mutual podcast friends. Um, and I think, you know, there's just so much generosity to go around. There's so much goodness to go around. So I'm, I'm thankful again, you know, to tack on another gratitude, but I'm thankful <laughs> that technology like brought us all together. So yay. Isn't it incredible that it's we're incredible. in three different places and we're having a conversation yeah. like this and it's like pretty flawless, honestly, yeah, and great. we can connect like this. Oh, beautiful. So well, it's so lovely chatting with you. Yes. I honestly learned so much. I can't wait to, for our listeners to, to hear it and go check her out. She's got her Instagram, her website, and so much to learn. Thank you.